Well, hi, everybody. Let me join Janet's welcome to those of you that are new. We're so glad that you've joined us. Um, happy New Year, right? What a great, great way to start the new year for me is to be here with all of you. Um, really grateful for this group. Um, my name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York. Um, so I, you know, tonight, um, I wanted to talk about relapse because um, this is a time of year, the beginning, you know, the start of the new year, where friends that have been in relapse decide to, you know, emerge, right? We emerge remorseful because that's the way we always emerge after we've succumbed to the bite. And now's a really good time when people are um, comfortable, in a sense, emerging, right? Letting you know that they're suffering, that they've been in pain. So I've had a number of outreach from people um, who, you know, identify themselves as either having a slip, having um, a little food problem over the holiday. You know, people will call it lots of different verbiage. Um, and we call it a relapse. That's really, that's just what it is. It's just call the name what it is. Um, and I think sometimes there's this mm, hesitation to call it what it is because people come with shame. They feel a sense of embarrassment and shame. And I think, you know, one of the really helpful definitions that someone had given me for shame is um, to look at the anacronym that should have already mastered everything. And there's a big problem there because that means that we're the master, that this is a problem that I should master. And um, if that's your thinking, you're actually really way back in step one because we're powerless over it, right? No reason to have shame. Um, the good news is there is a master we're not it. It's a power greater than ourselves. And so if you're feeling shame, you're thinking maybe you had some power that you could have done differently. And, and the truth is, there were probably series of actions you could have done differently. But the thing that you're ashamed of generally is the food. And you may as well just put that aside because um, being ashamed that you've succumbed to the food thinks, you know, is the thinking that you could have done any differently. And you can't, not if you have what I have. You had no ability to do anything different. Once you stopped taking the other actions, the action that led you to eat is your addiction, right? So, um, you know, when I, the first time I was asked to speak on this topic, I was actually sent a blurb. Um, that the that the person wanted me to focus on. I had done a, a panel about relapse, and the blurb actually came out of um, a plan of eating, and it was from page nine. And the the quote was, "Relapse is not inevitable." It's good news, right? It's not inevitable. Um, and then there was this little passage afterwards, and I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to sort of jump in on my my thinking, and we'll go really primarily into the book, into the book, the big book is really when I say the book. Um, but this is a little blurb and I believe it was from a plan of eating um, or it was from some sort of OA essay, you know, some sort of OA piece. And it says here, 
I had such a history of relapse that my sponsor said, if nothing changes, nothing changes. That meant drastic change in every area of my life, one day at a time. My life was permeated by bad habits. Breaking bad habits can require lots of prayer and willingness. At first, just driving past the restaurant or grocery store and heading for a safe place took every ounce of willingness I could muster. But every time I do that, it gets easier the next time. Just for today, I can do this. All of the power of the universe is behind every prayer. Every attempt to do things a little bit better today than I did yesterday. It really is a new day. I now know what works and what doesn't. I can for today, be kind to myself and to my body. I can be my own best friend. Even if I am taking baby steps in the direction of my dreams, I will get there. And this was a quote that was sent to me and they asked me to sort of develop the topic. And I, and, and, you know, so in thinking about that reading, um, and this idea of being my own best friend. I was sort of thinking about that a lot. Um, and I could, I could use a statement like that in the most dishonest way. I could take that statement, twist it, and I would say things like, well, I overate, but I'm not going to beat myself up over it. Like basically, I'm going to excuse myself, right? I'm not going to be upset over it. I'm thinking now about, you know, a much more powerful and truly loving friendship with myself today. And, you know, and here's what it is. I'm a child of an awesome God and he is the creator and I am his creation. And so I am best to treat his creation with love and care. And this means for me following these, this program. That's not overfeeding or underfeeding my body because it's flippant and actually uncaring to fill myself up with crap and then say, I'll treat myself kindly by being my best friend, by being my own best friend. Um, because when I'm filling myself with that food, I'm actually not being my own best friend. Um, a true best friend doesn't behave that way. But that line, the line in that quote about the all power all the power of the universe is behind every prayer. I think that was the important aspect of that passage. Now that is the very thing I needed and always need to keep uppermost in my mind. And that's the foundation really for me, for being a true best friend to myself, having the power of the universe behind each of my prayers. So what is a relapse? Like, let's just define it. Um, a relapse is decline, degenerate, revert, wane, and set back. And in our terms, it's when someone goes back to the food, right? And oftentimes we hear people try to quantify it. Um, they either, they'll say they had a slip. And they may have been sloppy in their eating. That's when I hear a lot. I was just getting a little sloppy with my eating. And they have, or they'll say, well, I really haven't been making the best choices recently. Um, and here's another one that, that we hear, um, well, I overate, but it was on my abstinent food, right? It's sort of like I overate, but um, that wasn't really, it doesn't really count, right? Um, and 
there's a lot of ways that um, relapse occurs. And I think it's worth really clearing up a few things. Like one, there, there are no slips. There's no such thing. Um, unless of course you actually, like I say this, unless of course you actually slipped and fell and your mouth was open and you landed on a cupcake, right? And it fell in your mouth, that's a slip. Otherwise it's not a slip, right? Um, it's, um, you know, it's, there were a series of actions that a compulsive overeater goes through in order to get the food and none of it is slipping. You know, they may have gotten in their car. They may have drove up to the drive-through. They may have ordered something, took out their wallet and some money, paid for the item, got it, unwrapped it and ate it, right? That's not a slip. Or they may have been cleaning up after dinner. It's a common one. Cleaning up after dinner, in the kitchen alone, annoyed at your family. They're such slobs. They never, they never clean the dishes with you. Or, or I'll do it. I'm such a martyr. And then something in my mouth. That's not a slip either, right? That, that's, that's a decision. It is a decision. Um, and two, sloppy eating. Let's talk about what sloppy eating. Well, sloppy eating is really not our issue. Um, because this isn't sloppy eaters anonymous. Like we have to be, let's be clear about the words. Cause if you're sloppy, like get a napkin, right? Like, let's just get a napkin. Um, I'm not here because I dropped food on, on the floor. That's not really, that's not what this is. And what does it mean when someone's eating in a sloppy way? When we say that, like, oh, I'm eating the sloppy way. It means that they're not eating in a way that's aligned with their definition of tidy eating. And what they mean by tidy eating is abstinence. They're not eating in an agreement with the way that they've defined as being abstinent. And that, that's really what it is, right? I don't think it helps us or helps one another to, um, to not be clear with our words. Right. It's not cruel. It's not cruel to say, uh, 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 let's not, let's not say, let's not use soft words. Let's just call it what it is so that we can identify what it really is. Just like if I went to the doctor and I had a hacking cough, I'm not going <clears> to <throat> try to stifle it down so the doctor can't hear me cough. Right. It's like we can't help each other if we're not honest about what our symptoms are. And eat food is a symptom. So if we're back in the food, we're displaying symptoms of our illness and best to be real clear about what our symptoms are. Um, you know, now let's, number three, the choices, the idea that I'm not making the best choices. So let's talk about choices, meaning someone has determined that they haven't been making the best choices. And to me, it sounds like they're saying they have the ability to choose, right? And now if someone believes that they have the ability to choose, then perhaps they never really took step one, right? If you're just saying, I'm not really making good choices, um, you, you say that you still have a choice and then you might not have this problem or you haven't fully conceded, surrendered and accepted to the inner, to your innermost self that you are a real compulsive eater. A real compulsive eater by definition has lost the power of choice. 
you know, in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in the chapter, there's a solution on page 24, it says this. The fact is that for most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. So when I was saying out there, you know, in relapse land, that I didn't make a good choice, but I would choose better next time, I was actually in greater danger than I ever imagined. I had no idea what danger I was in. Because as long as I believe that I can still control it, there's no chance that I can work the rest of the steps needed to get well and stay well. As long as you think you're still in control, how could you possibly give yourself over, right? All right, number four, overeating on abstinent foods. You know, I know that the doctor's opinion is very clear about the allergy of the body. And yet, and yet most of us have very specific allergic foods, a lot of us do, you know, things that trigger the allergy just from ingesting it in any form. But it's important to note that we are overeaters anonymous and not sugar eaters anonymous and not flour eaters anonymous and not candy eaters anonymous, but we're over eaters anonymous. And now, you know, perhaps there are common culprits for many of us, but it's the action also that I'm addicted to. And for me, it's the action of eating the wrong amount of food for my body's health and well-being. So overeating abstinent foods is actually not being abstinent. If you're overeating on your abstinent food, that's not abstinence. And we often suffer, yes, from allergic food behaviors. And I found out that the, that um, I triggered the allergic response for me, which is an insatiable need, right, for more and more and more, not just by eating certain foods, but also from certain food behaviors. And I need, for my recovery, for my plan, I need a daily committed food plan. I need to eat on time at the table and not in a casual way <clears throat> where food is recreational. Doesn't work for me. And I found out that for me, eating in front of the TV or spontaneously off my plan, you know, um, or delaying my meals way past the time when I should have eaten or leaving food off my plan. I've done that too, where it's like, I'm not going to eat all of it. I'll just, I'll leave like a little bit of it. Those kind of behaviors, um, those trigger an allergy. Those, those can trigger an allergy too. And so there's, you know, so now that we sort of discuss like what is, you know, what, what are the, the code words to listen for when someone calls us and they're like, well, I ate off my plan a little bit and now you can really sort of listen, right? So now there's two things I wanna focus on. One is coming out of the relapse, right? Recovering after the relapse and two, relapse prevention, right? How do we prevent it? from happening or happening again, right? So, you know, I was thinking, 
about why it is that I can speak about recovering um, from a relapse and also relapse prevention. Why is it that I can speak about it? Like what makes me an expert? And, you know, if, if I, let's say I was a heart disease, you know, specialist um, asked to talk about ways to recover after a heart attack or preventing a heart attack, um, you might be asked me to speak based solely on my education or my years of research or because I've had great, you know, clinical trials with patients, um, you know, but here, what are my credentials, my experience? That's, that's what makes me an expert here is that I've got some experience. Um, in OA, it's always our experience that makes us uniquely qualified. So in my own experience as a woman who, is, who has this disease for one and who has had a relapse, multiple relapses, two major relapses, um, and who has recovered. My hope is that my experience can benefit another, right? So that this thing that happened to me um, is could be helpful for you. And if there's something you hear in my story that you find beneficial, then I've been able to do something wonderful today out of these horrific events, right? So, and I love the part in the big book in the family afterward on page 124, it, it says, cling to the thought that in God's hands, the dark past is the greatest possession you have. The key to life and happiness for others. With it, you can avert death or misery for them. So that's my aim, right? That I could take what happened to me and hopefully keep someone else from being miserable or dying. And I just think that's beautiful. Like that my pile of garbage, all that pain gets reshaped, reformed, repurposed into something beautiful and actually my greatest possession, like better than, better than my, you know, engagement ring, <laughs> the best possession I got, the best thing I have. Um, you know, I, I came to Overeaters Anonymous. It's, um, over, geez, it's 30 years now, over 30 years. Um, and I was in my early twenties. I was at that time, I was 280 pounds. I newly graduated from college and I was disgusted with my weight and my life or really the lack thereof. My life was lacking and, um, and I was just disgusted with myself. I knew I had a problem much greater and different from others who said that they struggled with their weight. I had struggled with my weight all my life and I came to a meeting um, and in that particular meeting, it was the, you know, it was in the eighties. Um, they gave you a food plan at this meeting. They were like, here's a food plan. Um, and there was some information about the evils of sugar. And, um, I was also handed a big book and now the big book, I scanned it for the diet and I couldn't find it. I was like, I don't see a diet here. Um, and, but by the way, I didn't read the doctor's opinion because I had, I read the doctor's opinion, I actually would have found out there is a little bit of a, of a diet per se there. I just didn't understand. Um, so I took the book and I shoved it in a drawer and I worshiped my abstinence and my food plan. That's what I worshiped. Um, abstinence was God. That was my God. And my religion was my food plan. I practiced abstinence. I practiced a food plan to worship my abstinence God. 
And I, what happened for me was I lost a tremendous amount of weight in a record time, but I did not work the steps with intensity and earnestness um, necessary to recover. I didn't recover, um, but I'll tell you, because I was young and properly motivated by my misery and my alcoholic foods were put down, I was able to stay the course long enough to get what I had wanted and get what I was working for, which was a normal weight, um, a husband. I wanted a husband. That was really my motive. I wanted a husband. I wanted a good job. And I wanted a life, what I deemed was called a life. And um, But I never really helped anybody. And I was actually deeply ashamed of the fact that I had been morbidly obese. Like I wanted to keep that a secret. Like my husband sort of knew, but I really didn't want him to know too much. And I certainly didn't want his friends to know. I did not want people to know. I wanted it to be like, that was me then, now this is me. And let's all forget that that ever happened. Um, and I thought that now that I looked normal, I was normal. And so I could do what normal people do. And I would think, yep, that's how a relapse happens. That's exactly how a relapse happens. Because um, for myself, what happened was on my honeymoon, I looked around and those of you who know my story, I've said this a lot. I looked around on my honeymoon and I was in a bathing suit in a pool and I saw other young honeymooning couples who looked just like me in a bathing suit in a pool, happy. I was so happy. And they were having beautiful frozen tropical drinks with pretty umbrellas and things in it. And it looked so lovely. And I was like, I could do that. And it basically was ice cream in a glass. And as soon as I drank it, that was it. It was like, it was like that disease had been growing stronger all along. All while I had been abstinent, all while I had gotten thin and got my husband, I picked up that drink and the rest of my honeymoon it, we had fun, by the way. I didn't know I was out of control on my honeymoon because it was enjoyable. I didn't want to stop then. You don't know that you're powerless until you exert every piece of your power to stop and find that you cannot. I didn't know I was in a relapse then. I figured I'm having my honeymoon and I'll get right back on my plan on Monday. But that Monday came when I got home and I could not do it. It was impossible, impossible. And I remembered you know, getting home from my honeymoon, none of my clothes, none of my clothes fit me. Because when I gain weight, I gain weight fast and furious. Nothing fit me. Um, it was horrible. I had no clothes to wear. I was like, holy crap, what am I going to do? I went to the store. I bought all my food. Like I knew what I was supposed to eat. And that food rotted in my refrigerator. And I did it week after week after week. And within a very short amount of time, I was obese again. It was like, it was horrible for my marriage. It was very painful for me. Um, I was embarrassed for myself and I was embarrassed for my husband. I felt like, um, I felt like, um, like I tricked him. Like, like he got, he got, um, oh gosh, what somebody said, he pulled the old bait and switch on him. That's kind of what it felt like I did. And I, by the way, when I'm in the food, I'm the misery. 
it wasn't like it was fun and nice. And it was me crying and throwing fits and having tantrums and making him throw everything out of the food that wasn't, that I couldn't eat and then bringing it all back in again. And then eating in my car and eating in my bedroom and not wanting to be together. And thank you, God, I don't know how our marriage survived, but we're still together. <laughs> we've got, we're really, we've got a really great marriage. God bless this man. Um, but so all right. How can that experience help anybody? Well, if you want to avoid relapse, uh, don't do what I did. One, believe that you could grow new legs, right? You cannot grow new legs. Um, in the big book, More About Alcoholism, on page 30, it says, we are like men who have lost their legs. They never grow new ones. Neither does there appear to be any kind of of treatment which will make alcoholics of our kind like other men. We've tried every imaginable remedy. In some instances, there's been brief recovery. That's what I had, followed always by a still worse relapse. And physicians who are familiar with alcoholism agree there's no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. Science may one day accomplish this, but it hasn't done so yet. So to avoid a relapse, it's essential that one understands and believes in their very heart that this disease is permanent, progressive, and fatal. It's not getting better, it's getting worse. In fact, right now, even in my recovery, even in a recovered state, I do believe that this disease is getting worse. I believe it's getting worse. So to avoid a relapse, it's essential to understand and, and know this in our very heart. Okay, so to gain recovery and come back after a relapse, it's also crucial to understand that the relapse is not part of recovery. Not a part of recovery, but it's a part of the fatal progression. This is the subtle foe. It's a subtle foe. And the sufferer of the relapse often doesn't realize that they're in relapse until the consequences are apparent. It's easy to fool oneself if your weight hasn't increased yet, yet, right? But the progressive nature of the disease means that without a sufficient spiritual connection, the itchy, irritable, and discontent feeling becomes intense and frequent over time and the allergy becomes more sensitive. And, you know, I think about it like this. Um, this disease, it's a subtle foe and a subtle foe is cunning. It's tricky. It, it, uses, it uses trickery. And a subtle foe, I would say, lets you get away with it a little bit just enough so that you think you got away with it. And I, I believe I've seen that happen with enough people that when they finally emerge remorseful and we start digging in there and talking about it, the truth starts coming out that they stepped away long before they realized it. It started with small compromises in their recovery, small things that they did that the disease let them believe they got away with. And once they start thinking they get away with it, what happens is the disease says, 
shh, don't tell anyone. It's just between us. They don't need to know. See, you're okay now. You got yourself right back on. You don't have to tell them, right? You don't have to lose your status, whatever that means, whatever that means. But that's what the disease says, that you're going to lose your status. And so the disease kind of uses pride, uses your pride as your Achilles heel. It gets you every time. And what happens is when you start making small compromises, the thing inside you, your conscience knows that you're lacking integrity. And we can't live with that feeling. And once we start making those small compromises, little by little by little, next time we get away with, well, a little bit more. Here, have a little bit more. Have a little bit more until there is no resemblance to what it really means to be following your food plan or living in agreement with your disciplines. And at that point, I'd say you're like right for an all out low out where you're not just eating a little sloppy. It's an ice cream sundae sloppy, right? It's, it's a bag of donuts sloppy. Um, so, I need a spiritual connection. That's the only thing that's going to help me because my sensitivity, if this disease is progressing, my sensitivity has spread to foods that were once not a problem. That's the truth for me. It seems like um, my path got narrower. It's just the truth. And it seems to be more common with more folks than not. Um, and, and that's my truth. And it might sound horrible, but uh, as an aside, you know, I want to assure you that um, today I've not been upset when a food has become something I can no longer eat or a way of eating becomes something that I can no longer do. It doesn't seem to upset me so much. Um, you know, so... To avoid a relapse, one must continue to understand that this is permanent and that in order to keep ahead of the progressive illness, the spiritual connection must continue to progress and strengthen too. When I stop seeking God, thinking that my power source is enough, I invariably run out of my own power source because it's not enough. Another reason why I picked up was that I believed that my problem was entirely a food problem. And I thought that eliminate the alcoholic food, eliminate the problem. And I failed to understand the most essential piece of information. And this is in There's a Solution. Page 23 says, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. Now, I knew I had a problem once I ate certain foods. I had years of experience to inform me, and yet I seem to have no ability to call upon this experience to keep me in check. And page 24 says, we're unable at certain times to bring into our consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. 
we are without defense against the first drink. Defenseless. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. So why did I relapse? Because I suffer from food senility, because I'm a compulsive overeater. I barely remember just how bad it gets, just how dangerous certain foods and certain behaviors are. And here's the crazy thing, right? I have an awesome memory. I really do. When it comes to certain things, like, and usually painful consequences are easily recalled. They are for most of us. Um, and that's why rewards and punishments are great, powerful tools to get people and animals to behave certain ways. Behavior modification, rewards and consequences. It works. It's, it works for most people. It works in all areas. And for me, it works in most areas, except it doesn't work where food is concerned. Pain, consequences, doesn't matter. You know, and, and I'll give you an example. I, I love to shop. I, I do. I, I like buying things. I love looking in stores. I like walking around the mall. I like buying new stuff. And when I was young, thank God, I don't have, I don't have, I don't have that addiction. I might be a heavy spender. I might be a heavy, like the difference between like a compulsive. I can definitely, you know, um, but when I was young, I got my very first credit card and I charged more than I could afford. And at the end of the couple of months, I was like, oh crap, I got a bill. I, ca I can't pay it. It's too much for me. And I went to my parents and I told them and I was embarrassed. I was like humiliated. And, um, and thankfully, you know, I, uh, my parents were fortunate enough that they were able to pay the bill for me with the condition that I would pay them back, that I had to like put the credit card away, save it for an emergency until I could afford what I was looking to get. Um, and I had to pay them back. And, um, and it was uncomfortable paying them back as it meant I couldn't do certain things. I was living at home at the time. And I was, I was like, I'm not gonna go out and do X, Y, and Z. I owe my parents money. So it was uncomfortable and I, and I, it worked. The painful consequence, pain, humiliation, embarrassment worked. And I have never repeated this again. I've never repeated, I've never gotten to a point where I can't afford to pay my bill. Um, I still enjoy shopping <laughs> and I, but I can remember when I'm in a store and I see something I like that I may not be able to afford this item at this time. And especially if the oil for me, if the oil bill is due and it's coming up, I know oh crap oil bills due, mortgages due, got a car payment. I got to get new tires. Right. I know enough and I can actually curb my, my spending. I can avoid the consequence, but Compulsive eating is not something that I can recall until the food is in my mouth. In my mouth, chewed, and my memory fails to keep me in check. So if it's not my memory that I can rely on, 
then it's got to be God's protection, right? It must be God's protection. My second relapse, and so now we're going to find out, like, mm, how do I get God's protection then? If that's the thing, how do I get and keep God's protection? And my second relapse was about 20 years after that first one. And this time, I did understand that I needed a personality change. I knew that my problem was more than just a food problem. I knew there was something off in the way that I thought, I had knowledge, I had a lot of knowledge even about this condition. I knew it, and yet there were pieces that were missing from my understanding and from my program that are needed in order to have a full personality change. Entire abstinence and complete willingness to do every aspect of the steps in order to form a relationship with power. I did not have a clue about this relationship. And I didn't grasp that this entire program is based on this idea that I must have a connection with a higher power. I thought that was an option. I thought that was an optional piece. You know, maybe if you want to be one of those spiritual people, you can go that route. But I thought I could rely on fellowship and a food plan, right? I, this time I added the fellowship portion. Last time it was just the food plan. Now I was like, oh yeah, I'll add fellowship there too. And by the way, here's what I heard. If you leave God out of the 12 steps, you got nothing. You got Weight Watchers, right? God out of the 12 steps, you don't have the 12 steps. And I heard someone say something once, I thought this was brilliant, that OA without God is like a life preserver without the stuff inside that keeps you afloat. It's just a bunch of material, nothing, no power, nothing to save you. And take what you want and leave the rest does not apply to clear cut directions. Nope, uh, it certainly doesn't apply to God. Take what you want and leave the rest applies to people's opinions, right? That's it, um, including mine. Take what you want and leave the rest, right? Um, so I began working the steps and I lost weight, which was always my first priority. That was everything, just to lose the weight. Um, and I was not too sold on the God idea, but I wanted to get well enough to entertain the possibility. And I think what happened for me was I failed to understand three crucial things. One, I needed to find my way into the loving arms of my creator. I had to find a way there. And only an act of providence, meaning a miracle from God, could relieve me of the merciless obsession. No human power. I was looking for human power. That's what I was looking for. And it's not strong enough. Two, that I really have a very severe allergy and that it's to more than just the sugar. I've since learned that I have to be entirely abstinent 100%. And this included many foods and behaviors. And it has nothing to do with weight loss and caloric value. Caloric value and weight loss are separate separate issues. Um, and for me, it just kept me chained to my compulsion just the same. One of the things that kept me chained to my compulsion was diets and futuristic weight loss dreams, those ideas. 
Um, I had to stop living in this someday when I'm thin, I'll. Someday when I'm thin, I'll do X, Y, and Z. I had to truly focus on doing my best just with the very day in front of me. Three, I had to work all aspects of the steps, including getting entirely honest with someone about some resentments I had and some amends that I needed to make. And how did I learn this? From my experience. That's how I learned it. So here's my second relapse experience. I went away with my family on a beautiful vacation to Disney World. Notice going away on vacation is a dangerous time for us in recovery. So if you want to avoid a relapse, when you go on vacation, nothing should really change in terms of your food, except the city in which you're eating. That's really my, that's really what I've come to understand. That when I go away, my food will look almost exactly like what I eat right here in New York in my kitchen. Just about the same. Very little, very little change. Um, so um, I went on this vacation and I was having a great time. Uh, food was pretty much in check. Notice I said pretty much, right? Pretty much. Remember, I was doing those small little moves away that I was already starting to lack some integrity. Um, was I entirely abstinent? No, but I wasn't out of control yet, right? Yet. I was eating three meals, pretty sane, and I was enjoying this time away. I was writing down what I ate and on paper, it didn't sound so bad, but this is the denial of this disease because I could say on vacation, I could call it yogurt, oatmeal, and fruit. And what I considered yogurt back then does not resemble what I call yogurt today. It was not yogurt. It was dessert. Let's, let's just call it what it was. It had more crap in it. Um, and same thing with the oatmeal, you know, it was pretty much, it was almost like a hot cookie in a bowl. That was basically what it was. It wasn't like what I'm eating in my house. Um, so there was dishonesty. There was some obscure language and dishonesty. Um, and I would insist, by the way, back then I would have insisted that there was something wrong with the program that demanded anything more from me. I did not want to have a program that was more stringent than that. And I was also not living the steps and I failed to clear up the resentments, fears and harms that were too difficult, just the easier ones. And I loved this idea back then of the peeling of the onion. And if I didn't wanna do it, that part of the onion wasn't getting peeled. I was like, ah, I'm not peeling that quite now, someday. And I could live in the fantasy of someday, just like someday when I'm thin off. Someday when I'm thin, I'll blank, blank, blank. Someday I'll take a look at my behavior in this area, but not today. And this fantasy of someday has its flaws in many aspects of my life. Today, by the way, I still love the idea of peeling the onion, only I'm willing to have God peel it. And I let go of the someday. And instead I say, today is that someday. If something comes 
to my attention today, then I recognize it's time for that layer to get peeled, right? Willing to see it today. So what happened for me, I picked up, here's the crazy thing. Here's how I know I don't learn from the consequences. I picked up the exact same thing, same thing. I picked up on that honeymoon 20 years earlier, just did it in a different city, older and did it again. Um, and, you know, um, after I had that drink on that August day, by the way, I did not revert back to sugar after that. I didn't revert back to candy and cookies and ice cream and none of that. I had that drink. That drink pretty much was an ice cream. But then I started eating all my abstinent food sloppily, not abstinently, right? Overeating abstinent food. And from August to February, I gained a tremendous amount of weight back right? On not eating junk, but eating on my food plan, just in any old way that I wanted. Um, and I took me from August to February to come back after that relapse. I didn't want to come back. I was, I had shame because I thought I should have mastered it already. I thought I was the power source. So what can I suggest today, right? What can I suggest for you? One entire abstinence, like no wiggle room, no areas for interpretation. If you know it's a problem, it's a problem. If you think it's a problem, it is a problem. If you're not sure it's a problem, it is a problem, right? Not, not, to, not to delay and debate on it. Um, two, working the steps and living in them with intensity, all of them. That fourth step where I finally put it all down on paper, the fifth step where I got 100% honest and transparent with another person, which meant I had humility and honest appraisal of who I am, what I am, and a sincere desire to do better. That's what my fifth step was. Um, I got transparent with another person. And then in my ninth step, I made the amends that I thought I could never make. And my heart changes when I disclose its secrets, that's what happens. That's the secret. You wanna know how to get your heart to change? Tell the truth, your heart starts changing. It can't, it can't live in the dishonesty. I can't live in the, in the lack of, of integrity. And each of those things removed the shackles of the food. It gave me that spiritual relationship that strengthens and progresses, which is needed to keep ahead of the disease that is progressive in nature. So three, if I wanna have immunity, I have to work with others. Big book chapter seven, working with others, says nothing will so much as ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with others. It works when others' activities fail. So yeah, how? so now how do you come back after relapse? I actually think it's not so different than coming back or coming in. You know, <laughs> the difficulty with those of us who've had some form of a spiritual coming to is that we can lack humility just like before. 
And I lacked the humility to say that what I had before, although it was good and it was a peeling of an onion, it wasn't enough. I think I didn't want to say that I was out of control again. I wanted to believe that I had made some progress in my addiction. I didn't want to think that I was quite as bad as I was when I had first come in. And people will often say that um, they feel like they're just not as desperate. And so it's not as it's not a relapse per se, more just a loosening of the disciplines. And there's almost superstitious kind of thing that people have that if they identify it as an actual relapse, then they might really just go out there and go off. It's like, I may as well really eat now. And I think if that's what you're holding on to, this idea that the title of recovered, title of relapse is the thing that's keeping you in check, you're in trouble because that's not God. And those things can't keep you in check. So you haven't really taken a step two. You know, if you're not sure what to do and and you have succumbed to the desire, First and foremost, you got to get honest with your sponsor. You've got to tell your sponsor the truth. And the sponsor has to be somebody who's not going to be afraid of looking at the truth with you, right? Not going to be afraid to help you rip off the Band-Aid, find out where the wound is, get the antibiotic in there and clean it out quick. Doesn't always mean that the person has to go all the way back to step one and go through all the steps to, I don't know that per se. And you might not know it per se, but you've got to have an honest dialogue with your sponsor so that you can identify exactly where it was that you fell off so that you can get in there and clean it up. And I think, you know, I think the idea too is that nothing in God's economy is wasted, right? And so I don't think there's any reason necessarily to feel ashamed of it. No, it doesn't mean you have to get on a line of a thousand people and confess it to everybody out there. I don't think we have to get up there and rip off our wounds and let everybody watch us bleed for enjoyment, right? So that we can get back in check but we've got to get honest with someone so somebody can help us. And um, and that's the work of a sponsor as well. And I know I'm not really leaving much time for questions, but with that, I will pass. Thank you, Melissa. 